time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am Chris Rosebro, your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, tackling the uh, items of the day as it pertains to what's happening in the Christian church. Is that Christianity that you're hearing, or is it something else? That's what we choose to answer on this program. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am Chris Roseboro. Got a good program lined up today. We're going to, uh, well, aside from doing the news and doing a, some uh, listener email, we're also going to be uh, reviewing the High School Musical 3 Graduation Bible Study. That's right, High School Musical 3 There's now a Bible study, and it's developed by, guess who? The folks from Saddleback Church. Surprise, surprise. Yes, sirree, Bob. So, (laughs) I know you all have been dying to uh, experience the uh, High School Musical 3 Bible study. And and so, you know, I don't want to let you all down. I I really want to make sure that you are able to experience High School Musical 3 Bible study in all of its glory. And so we'll be getting to that as part of our program today. Um, yeah, there's so much to talk about. Um, let's dive into our listener email here. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, we reviewed Heresy Barbie's uh, appearance on CBN. Heresy Barbie is uh, uh, Joel Osteen's wife, Victoria Osteen, and uh, we were t- we. Did a little play-by-play color commentary on her appearance on uh, Christian Broadcasting Network, a.k.a. The 700 Club, talking about her new book, Love Your Life. Love Your Life. And I I offered counter-verses, you know, that basically said, Jesus says, unless you hate your life, you cannot be my disciple. Okay? So here we got Victoria Osteen telling us to love our life, and Jesus Christ telling us to hate our life. Which, of course, you know, I'm sure is just going to create complete disconnects in people's minds. Like, you know, well, Jesus obviously didn't mean that. And Victoria doesn't mean, uh, no. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Keep in mind, Victoria Osteen is a word faith believer. Okay. And uh, that's a heresy, folks. It's I'm not I'm not playing nicely with uh, the word faith people. Okay. So uh, anyway, Amy writes and she says, uh, Chris, what does the life hating life look like? See, now this is a great question. Okay, so Jesus tells us to uh, if unless you hate your life, then you cannot be my disciple. He says, what does the husband or family hating life look like? Because we know that Jesus was setting up a contrast and not literally commanding us to hate our spouses or families, because that would obviously conflict with other biblical mandates. All right, yeah, I get that. Likewise, what is the biblically sanctioned manner of enjoying one's life, if there is one? And I believe that there is. Well, I, you know, Amy, on that last question, I think you should provide us some more information before I answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> Not trying to be ornery. But if you want to know what the life-hating life looks like, all right, and what does Jesus mean when he tells us to hate our life? 
Well, um, basically, if you, well, let's let's interpret this in light of the law. We'll go first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? No other gods before me. So the life-hating life, if you would, part of it really includes that there is nothing in your life that is worshipped, trusted, feared, loved more than God. Now, here's the problem, okay? Second use of the law immediately is going to condemn us because each and every one of us has idols. Every single one of us has our own pet set of idols that uh, makes it so that uh, we don't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So, um, but if you want a picture of what the life-hating life looks like, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the Apostle Paul. Okay, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 21. Here's what it says. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, Paul says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and i am not weak who is made to fall and i am not indignant if i must boast i will boast of the things that show my weakness uh-huh yeah see this is paul's version of the best life now so the answer to the question, what does the uh, life-hating life look like? Well, I think Paul gives us a good example of what that looks like. So do the other apostles, okay? They didn't love their life more than they loved God. As a result of it, Paul, in several places, describes his life as one of being, he feels like he's being poured out like a drink offering. He suffered. He was martyred. So what does the life-hating life look like? It's, it's one where Christ is all. And if you're going to boast, you're going to boast in the things that show your weakness and show the strength of Christ. I think that's the biblical answer there. But see, that's not what Victoria Osteen is talking about. She's not talking about loving your life in the sense of this. No, she's actually talking about health, divine health, divine wealth. I mean, that's what Victoria Osteen is pushing and promoting along with her husband. So as a result of it, I mean, this is what she's promoting is the exact opposite of what Christ calls us to do. Jesus says, come, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Take up your cross. Everyone knew what a cross was for at Jesus' time. Crosses were for um, killing people. They were not for experiencing divine health and wealth. They were torture implements designed to kill you in a most painful way. So the Christian life, I'm sorry, our best life is not now. 
No, 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 no. In fact, the Christian life is marked with hardship, travails, sufferings, persecutions. Right. Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And look what they did to him. So, um, so Amy, the answer to the question is, what does the life-hating life look like? Well, look at the Apostle Paul and his description of the things that he suffered in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's what the life-hating life looks like. All right, Bob writes. He says, uh, well, you asked about my view of uh, Paul Washer's sermon. I could listen to him for hours because he is proclaiming the true gospel. Yeah, Paul Washer guy, you know, he's a Baptist, but we're not going to hold that against him in this case because he understands law and he understands gospel. And when he preaches the law, he doesn't sit there and give you five easy steps to make you feel like you're pulling it off. No, in fact, when Paul Washer uses God's law, it's the melt-your-face-off approach. You know, yeah, when when you're done, the only you're left. The only thing left of you is a small smoldering bit of ashes, and that's the way you're supposed to preach the law. Okay, he says if the Baptist preachers in this area had taught these things, I probably wouldn't have become a Reformed Presbyterian. Interesting. So by the way, you don't just uh, why don't you just go ahead and make the program a full two hours? He says you usually wind up getting close anyway. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. Um, you know, it, I am such a nonconformist. You know, this whole idea of having a, a two-hour box and a grid foisted onto my program would just stifle my creativity. And maybe not. I don't you know, I, I got to admit, it's kind of strange having a radio program that goes until it's done. And some days it's shorter and other days it's longer. Yesterday was a little bit longer. Got a got an email from Tiffany. Now, this goes back a ways. One of the earlier programs we did on Fighting for the Faith, I actually played for you audio of uh, Paula White and, uh, and her good buddy, uh, Mr. Huckster. <laughs> And uh, they made the claim in the, and, you know, right around Easter of this year, you know, they were making the claim that Jesus isn't the only begotten son of God. And they were talking about the seven blessings of the atonement. And guess what? You can have those seven blessings if you send money into Paula White's ministry. Seed yeah, seed offering. OK, so let me play for you with just a relevant portion of that uh, part of the uh, Paula White show. You know, talking about the seven blessings of the atonement, you know, where, you know the places where Jesus bled for you, and and and, and how you get all these different blessings. And let's let's hear Huckster and uh, and and Paula White talking about Jesus. So I now can say that again because now, they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You, you're the, He's the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of he's God. The, first the Bible one. says we're to come boldly before into the throne. Yeah, did you hear that? He, uh, Larry Huckster. There said that Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. Well, you know, here's a problem. All right, it just you know, and I brought this up on my show, and that is, is that the, you know, this, the Bible actually contradicts this. Uh, John chapter one verse fourteen says, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father." 
Um, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then you got 3.18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So um, let me let me play this again so you can hear it. Here, here. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You, you're the, he's the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many. Jesus on. is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of he's God. The first Bible one. says we're to. Yeah. Okay. So um, there it is. Uh, them denying that Jesus is not the only, or denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and. And in another place in the video, they act, Larry Huxter actually says we're not supposed to pray to Jesus. Was Huxter being yeah, I do believe that counts as blasphemy and heresy, both rolled up into one big ball of nastiness. Anyway, so Tiffany writes me. She says, this email may not get posted because I'm not agreeing with what I see here. Yeah, she, yeah, well, she actually posted this at the Museum of Idolatry. I gave her a battlefield promotion here. Okay. <laughs> She says, I know Paula White is a woman of God and she knows right from wrong. And she didn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to lie about the word of God. <laughs> Tiffany continues, obviously God spoke to her and revealed something that isn't on your level. And you and myself included need to seek God about the truth so that we can be enlightened. I, I, something's going on here. And she wrote this in all caps, so I'm assuming she's screaming at me. Yeah, because, you know, when, yeah, you're not, by the way, folks, if you uh, email me and it's in all caps, my assumption is going to be that you're screaming at me. And so I think the way that she really meant this to be read was, this email might not be, you know, that's a little over the top. So apparently she knows, she knows that Paula White is a woman of God. And it's obvious that God spoke to her and revealed something that isn't on our level. All right. Okay, so let's just take this apart. Okay, real simple. Okay, um, how would you know someone is a woman of God? Well, you have to test, right? Okay, okay. You've got to test what they say against the Word of God. Now, Paula White, Pastrix Paula White, already we've got a problem. Because there ain't no such thing as a Pastrix. I mentioned this yesterday, I'll say it again. How many of Jesus' disciples were women? How many of the apostles were women? Big goose egg. Zero. Yeah, I can't think of any. Okay? None. So was Jesus a sexist? New, no. and there's clear passages of scripture that clearly say that a woman is not to be an authority over a man in church, and a woman is not to teach in the church. The office of apostle, the office of pastor, is not for women. Now, that doesn't mean that women cannot serve in other capacities in the church. In fact, there are many, many wonderful capacities that women can and should serve in the church. Absolutely believe that. However, the office of pastor is reserved for men. I didn't put that restriction on it. God did. So already we've got a problem here. This 
woman, Paula White, is claiming to be a pastor, and they refer to her as Pastor Paula, um, there ain't no such animal. Okay, and that just makes me a sexist and, you know, you know, and a chauvinist and all that kind of stuff, apparently. Sorry. Um, when you win that argument with God about women not being allowed to be pastors, come talk to me. You, your argument is with God. It's not me. I'm just a messenger. Don't shoot me. Okay? So, we've got a problem. Uh, how would we know that Paula is a woman of God? Well, she. we've already got a, a major strike. Strike one. Strike two here is is that um, Tiffany, God's word instructs us to test all things. It tells us to test, test. This is not just some thing that you do just because you do this because God's word says to test. Now, let me let me pull this out and uh, <clears throat> let me give you an example of this. First um, Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty one. It says this, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, what's interesting is that uh, it, the scriptures are very clear. Okay, that um, that you know, for instance, the the Bereans. You've, you've heard of the Bereans, you know, they had a more noble character than the uh, Thessalonians, right? Um. Yeah, in fact, this is what it says. Acts chapter 17. Okay, I'm going to read in Acts chapter 17. And let me kind of set things up for you here as far as uh, you know what's going on in this passage. And that is, is that Paul has just left uh, Thessalonica. Okay, uh, for my wife, Mrs. Rosebro, I, I call it Thessaloniki because it just, she doesn't like it. It might, uh, you know, what's funny though. I learned that pronunciation from somebody who speaks modern day Greek, and she called it Thessaloniki. So, you know, what's funny is, is yeah, Thessalonica. 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 Oh, that's the one for her. Okay, all right. Yeah, so we got Thessaloniki, and (laughs) well, this is kind of a funny little aside here. Um, I was reading a a, a Greek scholar, and he was talking about. um, how we pronounce Koine Greek here, okay? And no one knows exactly what Koine Greek sounds like, and so we've we've all come, you know, the, the scholastics and the scholars have come up with a way of pronouncing Koine Greek. And modern-day Greek speakers just can't stand the way we pronounce it. In fact, you know, you pronounce a word, you know, in modern, using scholastic Koine Greek, and they're likely to correct you. And, and he was writing about this, how somebody who speaks modern-day Greek had kind of taken him to task and, you know, saying, why do you pronounce it this way? He says, well, the reason why we, I pronounce it this way, even though it's probably not technically correct, is because it allows me to speak to other people who know academic Greek, you know. So apparently Koine Greek is now, a, you know, is just a language spoken among academics. It's like the metric system. Like the metric system? Yeah, metric system. No one in the U.S. uses metric. Exactly. All right. So anyway, what happened is is that Paul uh, was on one of his missionary journeys. He had gone to Thessalonica. They kind of drove him out of town, and um, and so you know his life was in danger. I think. And then in, it says Romans chapter seventeen verse ten. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. 
okay, which was Paul's normal practice. He gets into a town, and the first thing he does is he goes to the Jewish synagogue, and what does he do? He proclaims Christ as the Messiah, and he preaches the gospel to the Jews in these synagogues. All right? And he says, in verse 11 says this, Now these Jews, the ones in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessaloniki. Okay? Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, that's interesting. Okay. First Thessalonians five says to test all things and hold fast to the good. Acts chapter 17 gives us an example where and, and by the way, the apostle Paul was an apostle. Okay, you don't see the Apostle Paul going, hey, wait a second, I preached the gospel to you. How dare you challenge what I said and compare it to the Old Testament to see if it was so. I am an apostle and you have to believe everything I say unquestioningly. Yeah, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) I am the great and powerful Oz. No, Paul doesn't say that. Neither does the scripture. The scripture doesn't rebuke or correct the Bereans for testing Paul. In fact, it says, now the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So that being the case, okay, Tiffany, we have to compare what Paula White says what Chris Rosebro says, what Larry Huckster says, what Rick Warren says, what Bill Heibel, what your pastor says, anybody who claims to be a teacher in the church and claims to be interpreting or teaching you the word of God, we Christians have an obligation to test what's being taught against the word of God. Plain and simple. So um, when we do that, and in fact, the Bereans... It says they had a noble character for doing so. I think that in a very real way that would apply to us as well, especially since Scripture is clear. Test everything. That's relevant. Tell, test everything. So here's the deal, and here's the rule, okay? If somebody teaches something that contradicts the Word of God, then that person is teaching false doctrine, false teaching, error, or heresy. I mean, there's different levels that it can kind of go to, okay? And so, um, it, Tiffany, when you say that it's obvious that God spoke to Paula White and revealed something that isn't on our level, um, that's an outright bald-faced lie. No way. God's not going to reveal... The scriptures aren't going to say Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God and then have God reveal to Paula White and Larry Huckster that... Um, that Jesus isn't the only begotten Son of God. Okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. No, God's word is true, and anyone who contradicts it is a liar. That's me included. So, no, it's not obvious that God spoke to Paula White. In fact, it's it's quite obvious that she either made this up, she's lying, or she received this information via the devil. Okay, so no, it's not so obvious that God is speaking to her. And so when we compare what Paula White teaches to the word of God, we discover she is a false teacher. She's a false prophet. She teaches false doctrine. 
And she's a rebellious woman who needs to repent because she claims to hold the office of pastor when Scripture clearly teaches that uh, that office don't belong to no women. And I, it's not that I hate women. I don't hate women. I love women. All right? So, <clears throat> anyway. All right. We've got a interesting news story here today. This one's going to take a little bit of prep work. I can just tell this one's going to take a little bit of prep work because on the surface, people are going to go, okay, so what's wrong with that? Uh, well, let's play our, our, our news music first. So here we go. Let's, let's dive into our news. Our... There it is, our news music. Are you ready? This is from the Christian Post, dated October 26, 2008. America's pastors urge to speak out against porn. America's pastors urged to speak out against porn. Okay, now, let's make something clear here. I absolutely am convinced that pornography is a terrible sin. Okay? Which makes me go... Why would America's pastors need to be urged to speak out against it? I mean, that's like a major duh. That's like asking politicians to go out on and give stump speeches and then spin afterwards regarding what they said. That's what politicians do, right? I mean, when was the last time you had to encourage a politician to lie? Yeah, I mean, they do it all the time, right? <laughs> Okay, so right off the bat, in reading this headline, America's pastors urged to speak out against porn. If pastors were doing their job, wouldn't pornography come up in the list of sins that that they should be preaching against? Uh, it, it shouldn't show up from time to time in the list of sins for which people should be called to repent of? And yet, we've got a headline here saying America's pastors are being urged to speak out. Something's wrong here. And you'll, you'll actually, you'll see it as we get farther into, I'm going to read the news story. As we get farther into it, it's going to become a little more obvious. But here we go. Here, several anti-porn groups fed up with the number of children and marriages that have been harmed as a result of porn addiction are urging Americans to fight back d during a pornography awareness event this week. Um, pornography awareness event. You know, the Triple X Church, they actually have a pornography Sunday thing that they do, and, and one of the th things they have is they, they call the event Porn and Pancakes. Yeah, quite frankly, I don't really enjoy porn with my pancakes. I prefer maple syrup and a little bit of butter and maybe some sausage and eggs. That goes really well with it. Yeah. I mean, personally, I save my porn for lunch, not, not for breakfast. <laughs> I just... I'll, stay with me, folks. It's You're going to understand what's going wrong here in a minute. All right, so there's a pornography awareness event going on this week. During the 20th annual White Ribbon Against Pornography Week, short name is RAP, W-R-A-P, which runs from October 26th to November 2nd, Americans are being called to speak out on the detrimental effects of pornography and inform others about ways to remove the garbage from the lives of families and local communities. Immediately, my question is, why are we only doing this for one week a year? 
I don't understand. Why would we limit our talk against porn to just one week a year? And why would pastors have to be urged to speak out against porn? All right. Rap Week is being promoted by Morality in Media, otherwise known as MIM. Okay. The Concerned Women for America and American Mothers. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Janice Shaw Kraus, director and senior fellow of uh, Concerned Women for America, Beverly LaHaye Institute, says the pornography industry has exploded in recent years. In just a few years, Internet pornography has grown around 19-fold. In 1998, there were less than 80,000 Internet porn sites. Notes Kraus, that figure has now grown to 1.5 million in 2003. Okay, yeah, uh-huh. Today, over 15,000 new adult movie titles are released every year. Krauss reports, furthermore, recent figures reveal 35 million visits to porn sites from American computers every month. Apparently, porn is like America's new pastime. So, um, anti-porn activists say a higher supply of porn means more accessibility and greater exposure to the public, and some of those viewers include children. Of course, yeah, all right. So 42% of Internet users aged 10 to 17 have said that they have seen online pornography within a one-year period. And according to a 2007 study by the University of New Hampshire, the study also found that over one-third of 16- and 17-year-old boys surveyed said that they had intentionally visited X-rated sites in the past year. Since pornography is a $5 billion industry annually, it affects us it harms women and children. It destroys families. It weakens communities, says Krauss. Now, she's spot on. This is true. Okay. It is especially a threat to children when 85% of prisoners convicted of possessing child pornography admit to abusing at least one child. In 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in California, uh, in California versus Miller, that obscene material or hardcore pornography is not protected by the First Amendment. Robert Peters, uh, president of Morality and Media, however, says that the United States has failed miserably at protecting juveniles from pornography. The Supreme Court has handed down rulings against Communications Decency Act of 1996 and Child Online Protection Act. All right, all right. moving to the next page because I want you to hear what we're going here. Okay, so the story considers, for Krauss, the fight against pornography is not a matter of legality but a le- uh, uh, an issue of enforcement. Obscenity is illegal and has been since 1973. The problem is that the state prosecutors and the United States attorney cannot prosecute unless violators of the obscenity laws are brought before them. Peters has sent a letter to presidential candidates McCain and Obama urging the states to support uh, their support for vigorous enforcement of federal obscenity laws. Okay. Um, let's continue down here. <laughs> This is where it gets interesting. The backers of Rap Week are asking people to complain to businesses that distribute pornography, write letters to the editor, distribute information to the community, educate community leaders about the negative effects of pornography, contact state prosecutors, U.S. attorney. Okay. Rap supporters are also encouraging pastors to preach about pornography as sin in their sermons. Uh huh. <clears throat> there. <laughs> Why would they have to encourage a pastor to do this if a pastor was doing his job? Okay. So we want pastors to preach about pornography as a sin. Quote, our pastors need to preach about the wages of sin regarding objectifying women 
and Sexualizing Children, states Krauss in her latest opinion piece, quote, religious institutions should also be at the forefront of effort to make persons of all ages understand that from a faith perspective, viewing pornography is morally wrong, sinful, if you will. And the use of pornography is destroying countless marriages, contributing to other harmful behavior, says Peters. All right, so here's my frustration with this piece. If pastors were doing their job instead of being seeker-sensitive and were actually preaching about sin in such a way that it convicted and condemned sinful behavior and attitudes and thoughts in people's hearts and minds and their actions, we wouldn't have this problem. But you see, I'm sorry, but if you're seeker-sensitive, telling somebody that pornography is a sin is just not seeker-friendly. Somebody's self-esteem could get hurt. In fact, you know, if Perry Noble were to do it, he might he might say something like, you know, this isn't the best way for you. Pornography is just not the best. No, it's a sin. Okay, it's a sin. Pastors don't preach anymore about sin. So I find it interesting that we've got groups now who are ha- having to ask pastors to uh, to preach about sin. <sighs> So, um, yeah, all right, so so it's a sin. But see, the thing is, is that it doesn't stop there. I'm going to make a claim. One of the reasons why pornography is, is growing in leaps and bounds in the Christian church not only has to do with the fact that pastors are no longer preaching about sin, but pastors, as a result of it, aren't even preaching the true gospel. If you want to see effective change regarding pornography in the Christian church, preach the law to convict people of their sins. Preach pornography as adultery. Preach pornography as fornication. Preach pornography as a sexual sin. Let the Holy Spirit convict people of their wretchedness and then offer them the comforting words of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That Christ died for people who are addicted to pornography. And that Christ is offering his mercy and forgiveness. Repent and believe this good news. If our pastors would do that, instead of committing to preaching once a year on the terrible things about pornography, that's going to be completely useless. That's just not going to do nothing. In fact, the situation's only going to get worse. All right, we're up on our first break here. If you would like to email me about anything I said in my emails or about... Uh, why do you think pornography should only be discussed once a year, you know, as a sin? You know, during the rap week. Email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the First Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, 
The mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. High School Musical 3. Bet you didn't know that it had all kinds of spiritual truths that you can plumb from it. The folks over at Saddleback Church have actually created um, the High School Musical 3 Bible Study, and it's available online for free. Thank God it's for free because I can tell you right now after going through this and in my show prep today, if I had paid any money for this, I would want a refund. And you know what's funny is is that this actually, the reason why I want to talk about this particular Bible study is because it shows what's wrong, not only in youth ministry, but in how people are handling God's word. All right? Saddleback, Rick Warren is on the record as saying that the Bible is a handbook for living. It's a Chilton's guide for what ails you. And uh, I tell you, the the uh, the folks, uh, Doug Fields, who put this uh, high school musical three Bible study together, works from that same principle that the Bible is a guidebook for living. No, it's not, folks. The Bible is not a guidebook for living. It, there's stuff in there that you can apply to your life. There is wisdom information, but that is not what the scripture is about. The scriptures are primarily about Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done in human history to save sinners of all ages. When we read in the scriptures the story of Abraham, David, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Ezekiel, uh, the minor prophets, Solomon, we stand shoulder to shoulder with all of those sinners in our sin. And the great men of God in the Bible, it wasn't because they were so moral that made them great. What made them, what made them great men of God is their faith. It's exactly what the scriptures teach. Read Hebrews 11 if you don't believe me. So I, we're going to talk about the high school musical three Bible study. And uh, just for a teaser here, here's the here's the audio from the video promoting this wonderful new resource for youth of all ages. Because everybody knows that Disney is a Christian organization and they write Christian stuff. Here we go. Hang on a second. Here we go. Hey, youth pastors. I'm Casey Stroh from High School Musical. So, Friday, October 24th is a big day because that's when High School Musical 3 Senior Year opens in theaters nationwide. 
What's more, Kurt Johnston, the youth pastor at Saddleback Church, and our friends at Simply Youth Ministry have teamed up to create resource materials tied into the themes in the movies. So you can see High School Musical 3 with your youth group opening weekend and then be ready for a meaningful discussion on Sunday morning. The best part? It's all free. So go- uh, get, get that? You can go see High School Musical 3. It opened on the 24th, so it opened up on Saturday. And the best part is you can use this free resource to come to church and have a meaningful discussion about the themes in High School Musical 3. Uh-huh. Go to www.wildcatsweekend.com and start planning your youth group's Wildcat Weekend soon. See you soon. All right. You know, so what's funny is that this morning I showed one of my teenagers <clears throat> this promo for the High School Musical 3 Bible study. Asked her if this would be something that she would really get excited about. And she looked at me like I'd just fallen off the turnip truck. She's like, you got to be kidding me, Dad. Showed this to a couple of my younger employees today, too, the, the early 20-somethings. And they kind of looked at me like, that's just so ridiculously stupid. Why would it be stupid to somebody like that? Why? Because you know what? The Christian church really looks dumb when it tries to be relevant in a way where it mimics the world or hijacks their stuff. This doesn't – I'll be honest with you. This, what you're going to see is that this is a really schlocky treatment of the scriptures. But even worse, if you're a fan of high school musical, these different you know, high school musical 1, 2, and 3, these Bible studies, you know, the people trying to pander to you somehow Christianize it. All it does is ruin the movie. You know, I prefer my movies without Bible studies. Thank you. Okay? If I'm going to do a Bible study, I actually own a Bible. I have more than one, actually. Um, I actually own several Bibles. And I know how to open it and to read it. In fact, fathers, if there are any fathers in my audience listening, you really want to learn the Bible and you want your kids to learn the scriptures, there's this wonderful way of doing it. Here's what you do. First of all, make it a point of eating dinner together as a family. If you're not doing that, you really should be doing that. Not because you're going to go to hell if you don't, but really that's a, that's, that is a key way to keep your family together as a family. Eat as a family. Then what happens is, is that, Dad, when you're done eating... Put your plate away and go grab the family Bible and work your way through it. Kid you not, start in one of the Gospels. Mark is a good place to start because everything happened immediately. And immediately Jesus did this and immediately Jesus did that. It's a great action uh, story for uh, children. Now, I've been doing this with my kids since they were knee-high to a grasshopper. As a result of it, my kids have been, they've been taught the scriptures from front to back several times in the course of their little young lifetime. And they know what the scriptures teach. If you're going to have a Bible study, do a Bible study. If you're going to watch a movie, watch a movie. Okay? Don't put the two together. Okay? In your quest to be relevant. Because as you'll see, when we get into this Bible study... What I, my contention is is that this is just schlocky stuff. This is a really poor treatment of the scriptures. But you know what do I know? I'm just an angry guy. So here we go. Let's 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 talk about it. Here's this is the video. This is audio from the video that comes with the free high school musical three Bible study. 
Yeah, here we go. Talk about it is what it says. Hey there, I'm Casey Stroh. Wasn't High School Musical 3 senior year amazing? No, I didn't see it. <laughs> I don't think I want to. Wasn't it amazing? <laughs> no. Second part of your Wildcats weekend is about to begin. Using different scenes from the movie, your youth group leader is going to walk you through a really great discussion about our hopes, our dreams, and our lives. So, let's get started. Let's do that. Discussion one. I have the Bible study in front of me. Let's see what she says. Remember the scene at the beginning of the movie where Troy and Gabriella are up in the treehouse looking at the stars and talking about their future? Let's talk about that. Okay. So that was the uh, video intro. <laughs> you look at you look disgusted, Josh. <laughs> okay, so here we are. Discussion one. Okay, remember the scene at the beginning of the movie where Troy and Gap. Why does it sound like a like y- y'all ever experienced two women talking about a soap opera? <laughs> oh, I've I've seen this before. Yeah, this is, okay, so we've got a soap opera going on here. And you got to kind of say it with that perky teen thing going on. <laughs> Remember when Troy and Gabriella are up in the treehouse looking at the stars and talking about the future? Let's talk about that. Okay, so reading from the <clears throat> Saddleback Produce, Wildcat Weekend, High School Musical 3 Bible Study. In that scene, Troy talks about some of his childhood memories, like throwing a water balloon on a neighbor, letting an an iguana loose in kindergarten, etc. So turn to your neighbor and share one of your favorite childhood memories. Now, (laughs) now, I I won't wait for you all to do that. If you want to do this, you can actually go to wildcatweekends.com and download your own version of this. So I'm not going to share any of my favorite childhood (laughs) memories. Okay, it says, uh, do one or two people want to share theirs with the entire group? Okay, so the, the the Bible study begins with you talking about childhood memories and then somebody from the group sharing one of their favorite childhood memories. Why do you think it makes so many young people uh, a little uneasy to start thinking about their future? Okay, so this is a discussion question. So uh, share with everybody. Josh, why do you think it makes so many young people a little uneasy to start thinking about their future? Okay. (laughs) You seem so hostile. All right. Okay. So, okay, so far, um, so we've shared our childhood memories. Then they want you to answer the question in the group why people are uneasy. This sounds like group therapy. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I mean, this sounds like some kind of psychobabble group therapy thing going on here. All right, it says, when you think about your own future, what makes you the most nervous? What makes you the most excited? So apparently in this discussion group Bible study, you're supposed to now discuss what makes you most nervous and what makes you most excited. Okay. All right, now here comes the Bible part. Okay. Uh, well, we got two verses ripped out of context. Okay. Two. <sighs> and it's a little frustrating. So here in discussion one, you've shared with your neighbor your childhood memories. Somebody's shared their memories with the people in the group. You answer the question why you think kids get uneasy talking about their future. And then you've discussed what makes you most nervous and what makes you most excited in life. Have you learned anything about the Bible yet? No, and, and in fact, I bet in the middle of your Wildcat Weekend experience, 
um, that this probably has taken a good 10 minutes up to this point, you know, if you're doing this in real time. But now we are go- we're going to throw in a Bible verse, actually two Bible verses. One is from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, and the other is Jeremiah 31, 17. I mean, we've got to make this a Bible study because this is supposed to be youth group leaders. Okay, so Jeremiah 29, 11, out of context, by the way, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Boy, you know, that sounds so good, but um, have you all ever read that passage in context? Okay, in fact, just because I'm a nice guy, I, I really, I am. I, I know that there's some people at Saddleback who don't think I'm very nice. <laughs> And they're entitled to their own opinions about me. And that's okay with me. Okay, but because I'm a nice guy, we're going to actually look at Jeremiah chapter 29 in context. It would help if I spelled Jeremiah right. Jer- uh. No, not that guy. Not Jeremiah Wright. We're not doing an Obama thing here. All right. All right, here we go. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, they're reading verse 11 out of context. In verse 11... When you read it out of context, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. You know, when you read it out of context, who do you think that verse is about? You? Um, I hate to pop your bubble on this one. Um, what The you there is not you. This is not a universal you. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1, listens to this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If you read the verse in context, you realize, wait a second, that wasn't written to me. Who, this was the words that Jeremiah the prophet wrote to the Jews in exile. Verse 2. This was after King uh, Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it said. Okay, so we're reading the words of a letter written by Jeremiah to the Jews in exile. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who is this letter addressed to? Is it addressed to you? Is it addressed to me? No, it's addressed to neither of us. We're reading history at this point, right? All right. God says, verse 5, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have your sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find uh, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets 
and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Folks, we've got a problem here. The uh, High School Musical 3 Bible study is twisting God's word. Yeah, the first verse in the High School Musical 3 Bible study, written by Doug Fields of Saddleback Church, completely rips Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 out of context and makes it sound like God is promising to prosper you and not harm you and has plans and hopes for your future. And they're off the wrong track. This verse has nothing to do with you and me. Now, I would like to think that God cares about me and the plans I have for my life, but he didn't promise me to prosper me, did he? He promised the Jews in exile that. See, one of the things you've got to do when you're going to, if you're going to study God's word properly, who is the book you're reading written to or the letter written to? Sometimes the audience is going to have a profound impact on how you interpret a passage. All right, so, okay, so they've quoted Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context. Let's take a look at the second verse, uh, Jeremiah 31, 17. We'll read it in, in context, 31. Okay. 31 begins with these words. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Who's Jesus? Who's God talking to here? Uh, this will be the exiles again. Okay. Um, we'll go fast forward to verse 10. So hear the words of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far away. Say, who who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. Okay, this sounds good so far. Verse 15, moving forward. Just want to make sure we're getting some context here. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This, by the way, is a prophecy regarding the killing of the innocents in Bethlehem. Okay. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. All right, so here's the deal. Doug Fields from Saddleback Church, who compiled this Wildcats weekend Bible study for High School Musical 3, Quotes Jeremiah 31, 17. Not only does he quote it out of context, he doesn't even quote the entire verse. So the, uh, the, the, the second half of that, here's the whole verse. All right, you ready? It's, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. 
when you read that in context, you realize it ain't about you, right? It ain't about you. So Doug Fields then quotes these verses out of context and then asks the question for discussion in this youth group study, why should these verses give us confidence about our future? And we're supposed to discuss. So you're going to read these verses out of context and then ask kids to discuss why these verses should give us confidence about our future. Well, unless you are a Jewish kid in exile at the time of the Babylonian captivity, um, these verses really don't offer you much hope for your future. Yeah, the coupons have expired. That's a good one. How does it make you feel to realize that God has good stuff in store for you? Well, again, unless I'm one of the Jews in exile, this is what this is addressing, then uh, this really isn't about me. (sighs) When Jesus was on earth, he spent a ton of time with his 12 disciples, preparing them to continue his ministry. I'm reading, by the way. Here, you know, this is this, this discussion point. When Jesus was on earth, uh, he spent a ton of time with his 12 disciples, preparing them to continue his ministry when he was gone. He knew they were super nervous about continuing on without him. They didn't know what their future held. So he said this in, in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Another verse out of context. That is John... We're going to have to go to John chapter 14, folks. John 14. All right. 14 verse 27. Context, context, context. Starting at verse 25, actually, if you read it in context, it says this. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but a helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. All right. So apparently reading this passage out of context, just by saying, peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, who was he speaking to? Uh, the apostles. Okay. Um, he says, how easy is it for you to trust that God has great stuff in store for your future and that Jesus wants to give you the gift of peace as you head into it? That's the discussion question off that verse. How easy is it for you to trust that God has great stuff in store for your future and that Jesus wants you to give wants to give you the gift of peace as you head into it? Is that what that verse promises? Where's sin here? Uh, this is all about this is this is crazy. This is all about me. I'm going to take verses out of context because the Bible's a handbook for a living. I'm just going to go and hunt for verses out of context and apply them to me and believe that God has great things in stuff in store for me. Yeah, but Jesus said um, they hated me, they'll hate you. He promises persecution, sufferings. The uh, Remember the uh, the life-hating life that I described earlier? Yeah. Hmm. So already for the Simply Youth Ministry, which is the, the organization at Saddleback that put together the Wildcats Weekend Bible study to be discussed regarding the High School Musical 3, we have this profound problem that the Bible portion of the Bible study is completely 
off base. And it's the questions are me centered and sell and 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 pop psychology and group therapy type questions. I, I, I got news for you folks. I wouldn't send my kids to this unless I wanted my kids to go to hell. <laughs> my son's here and he says, Well thank thank you, thank you, Dad. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, we'll we'll continue on the sec on the the other end of the break. We're going to go into our second break. If you would like to uh, email me, you know, you know, you've heard of email, you can do so. Talk back at uh, fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology made accessible. All right, we're back. You know, I feel so relevant whenever we cover topics like this, you know. Can you believe it? Chris Roseborough's talking about High School Musical 3. He's so cool. He's so hip. He's just rocking that bad boy. (laughs) 
Well, so far it doesn't look good for Doug Fields and the Saddleback crew that put together the High School Musical 3 Bible Study. It's more like the High School Musical 3 uh, Heresy Study. Yeah, they see High School Musical 3. It's all about me and my angst. It's all about ripping verses out of context and making me feel better and more comfortable about my uh, my uncertain future as a high schooler. Well, okay, let's let's dive into the next one here. Uh, All right, let's see. Uh, We've got to do um, we've we've really got to do the second one here. And so hang on a second. here. Let me find this. All right, Rose, bro. Yeah, it's always difficult when I have to do it myself. <laughs> I always do it myself. All right, let's see. Let's open this up. It's not opening. Why isn't it opening? All right. <clears throat> it would help if it would open. My Mac study guide is is just missing. Can you believe that? <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna play the audio from the video from the from the study guide here, the second part of this. That literally is not opening. Mm. I kid you not, it's not. There we go. We'll open it. There we go. It's the demons. We've got gremlins in the system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So okay, here we go. We're gonna go to the second one here for discussion number two. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Discussion two. As evident in the film, there is a consistent theme about the challenges facing the class as they grow up and begin to move on. All the Wildcats' lives are about to change forever. Let's talk about that for a moment. Okay, the Wildcats' lives are about to change forever. I feel my brain cells dying. Yeah, you feel brain cells dying? Yes. Yeah. This is not safe for... Well, we're not. By the way, we're not going to do the entire Bible study because that, there's six whole discussion sections. Because, you know, it's part of the wildcat experience that you can have. For, yeah. So uh, so discussion two is, uh, it says in the film, there's a consistent theme about the challenges facing the class as they grow and begin to move on. Oh, those pesky life challenges as a teenager. You know, that uncertain future, those challenges of growing up. And so here we go. Here, here's some discussion stuff. Here it says, while the, all the Wildcats' lives are changing, it seems like Troy and Gabriella are facing the biggest challenges and changes. Gasp. It sounds like a soap opera. My entire life is now wrapped up in Troy and Gabriella. As the stomach bile turns, such as the days of our lives. Last we left off, Troy and Gabriella were experiencing life change in an uncertain future. Will God step in to provide peace and comfort? Stay tuned. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> oh, the humanity. All right, so here, here's, the, uh, here's the study question here. What are some of the key changes and challenges facing Troy? Apparently in the Wildcat Bible study, or the, the High School Musical 3 Bible study, you get to exegete uh, and, and dig in to... And, and as this group discuss the key changes and challenges facing Troy. Well, how about Gabriella? How are her challenges and changes the same? And then how are they different? See, this is like a compare and contrast thing. You know, like you know, on Sesame Street where they do that, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. So say, for you teenagers out there, you get to do one of those things. You know, how are Gabriella's changes and challenges the same? And how are they different? Well, she's a girl and he's a guy. I mean... 
discuss from there. So, okay, so here's some more discussion questions. Do you think most people your age like change? Let's see that. We get to discuss this. Why or why not? Okay, so so far the, the 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 major meaty portions of the discussion are really centering on the movie. Think about some of the bigger changes you've gone through in your life. How have these experiences shaped you and affected you? This is group therapy. This this have folks, are you learning anything about Christianity from this so far? The, I mean, we're 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 really deep into discussion uh, section two here in the. Uh, high School Musical 3 graduation Bible study for the Wildcat Experience developed by Saddleback Church. Developed by Saddleback Church. Okay, so moving along here. It says, for most people, changes, especially big life changes, are pretty scary. Duh. Okay. Man, did a rocket scientist figure this out? I think Blazing Saddles. Um, yeah. Actually, I, I agree. I do think that the Blazing Saddles Bible study is more sanctified. I should find that. Folks, um, if I play the Blazing Saddles Bible study, I wrote that as a piece of satire, by the way. Um, if I <laughs> – I should play this. We'll, we'll, let's finish this up and we'll do the Blazing Saddles Bible study because it's a pretty quick one. Um, I, I do think that there's more – I think that's on the same level here. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so the the reason is because uh, change changes things. Oh, come, you, you, you got to be kidding me! For most people, changes, especially big life changes, are pretty scary. And the reason is because change changes things. Oh my goodness! No, 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 no! Oh man! All right, and when things change, most people get nervous. God understands that change is tough and gives us some pretty good advice in the Bible to help us navigate through whatever changes life brings our way. Folks, you know what I have a problem here is that this is not teaching kids how to properly read God's Word. Is this an Obama Good night. See, God is giving us good advice. See, the Bible, because it's a handbook for living, it's going to give us good advice on how to handle the stress that comes because of changes, scary, those scary things called changes. So check out Isaiah 40, verse 8. It's a verse again. I don't, you know. Hang on a second. I've got to go to chapter 40 of Isaiah in my computerized Bible. Here it is out of context. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Great. How does that help me with life changes? Uh, let me read it in context. Let me back up a few verses. It says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. You know, when I read this in context, I I have more stress now because God's word just said that I'm like grass and I'm going to fade and wither. Man, I I need a stress pill. I I just read it in context and now I've got to go see my therapist for real. I'm I'm all freaked out. I mean, this passage makes it sound like I'm going to die someday. I I am. I'm. 
While it's super important to think about our future and the changes we are facing, it's not a good idea to dwell on them too much or to let the changes we are facing cause us to worry and stress out. Let's look at something really interesting that Jesus once said. See, here we go. Jesus is no longer the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the supreme advice giver. Here we go. From Jesus, the advice giver, we get this. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add to a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. If they don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, we will certainly care. he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? Actually, I'm sorry, the context here in the uh, High School Musical 3 Bible study was talking about life changes and and Jesus is talking about what we're going to eat, drink and wear. These things dominate our thoughts, the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all of your deeds. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Wow. Wow, what surprises you about what we just read? That it was so terribly mangled, it was a really bad translation. There's my there's my answer for the group. <laughs> According to the very last part of this passage, as we go through life's challenges and changes, what's the most important thing to remember? Uh, let's see. The law. Live righteously, and then God will give you everything you need. Folks, if you want your children to become atheists or to go to hell, send them to these Bible studies. This is what's going on as youth ministry. You, th- th- this is ridiculous. This is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. Uh, how did this? I, I don't get it. I just, I just don't get it. So, as promised, you know, I promised you guys we do the. Um, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, I'm going to get email for this. You know that, right? <laughs> you know, a few, a few years ago, I. Um, got fed up with these types of Bible studies. See, there's there's all kinds of Bible studies out there based upon movies. Do you know they, ha- they have Bible studies based upon Gilligan's Island? No kidding, no kidding. They have Bible studies based upon Gilligan's Island. And so I, a few years ago, I actually wrote a Bible study called the Blazing Saddles Bible Study. Yeah. Um, I promise that this will not um, be Flattering. blessing. There's no way that this is actually going to be a blessing. <laughs> oh man. Blazing. Hang on a second. Blazing saddles. Bible study. Yeah. I got to find it here. Here it is. <laughs> I just Google myself. Here it is. The blazing saddles. Bible study. I actually wrote this in honor of, uh, Rick Warren's, uh, column in the, in the Christian post called learn to laugh. Because he mangles God's word terribly in that in that particular. <sighs> All right. OK. From the Museum of Idolatry, I write in honor of Rick Warren's latest column entitled Learn to Laugh, where he claims that Psalm 2, 4 teaches us that God has a sense of humor. 
I ki- folks, I kid you not. Rick Warren actually, in a, it, I'll, I'll put a link to the Blazing Saddles Bible Study at FightingForTheFaith.com if you want to go and and uh, take a look at it. And in that, in the Blazing Saddles Bible Study, I have a link to Rick Warren's Learn to Laugh article. I kid you not. He claims that Psalm chapter two verse four teaches that God has a sense of humor. Let me read this in context to you. Um. And see, the funny thing is, if you read it in a, in a good translation, there's no way. It, uh, it, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the, uh, the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in thrones in the heavens laughs. That's what Rick Warren says. See, Psalm chapter 2 says that God laughs. It, read it in context. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion on my holy hill. He's laughing in wrath. Okay. No, and yet in, in Rick Warren's piece in the Christian Post, listen what he does with this. It's just crazy. It's absolutely just nuts. Rick Warren writes, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm chapter two, verse four. And it says, quote, the one enthroned in the heavens laughed. Isn't that a great verse? God has a sense of humor. God laughs. Have you ever seen the face of an orangutan? God thought that one up. That proves that God has a sense of humor. That's a direct quote from this column. Yet when you read Psalm chapter two, verse four, this is not the kind of laughter you want God to be engaging in, especially towards you. Because he's laughing in derision. He's about ready to smite you. There's a great word. We don't use that anymore. Smite. All right. So we continue with the Blazing Saddles Bible study. Folks, I apologize. Uh, This material might be a little bit... um, (sighs) It's man humor. Okay, let's just put it that way. Women, you'll be disgusted. I apologize. Okay, so in honor of Rick Warren's latest column entitled Learn to Laugh, where he claims that Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 teaches us that God has a sense of humor and that we can be more like God if we develop a sense of humor, we've created the Blazing Saddles Bible Study. Consider this to be our small contribution to the world of purpose-driven slash seeker-sensitive small group study material. Please note that since Rick Warren likes to take liberties with how he interprets and applies the Bible, we thought that it would only be appropriate appropriate for us to do the same. Folks, that's the problem with this these Bible studies. If this is how you're teaching people how to read God's Word, you're actually setting a terrible example for them on how to read God's Word. Okay? So here we go, the Blazing Saddles Bible Study. Step one, have small group participants read Rick Warren's article entitled Learn to Laugh. Okay, we've read sections of it. Now, read this excerpt from Rick Warren's article out loud. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Isn't that a great verse? God has a sense of humor. God laughs. Do you want to be more like God? Then you need to learn how to laugh. A sense of humor can preserve your sanity. Now, ask each member of the group what Psalm 2, verse 4 means to them. Okay, so what does that verse mean to you? Oh, that verse means to me, you know, I just need to lighten up. It means I need to be more funny. I need, Chris, you need to stop hating on Rick Warren all the time. <laughs> okay, all right, there we go. That was my contribution to what that verse means to me. 
By the way, that's a terrible question. Don't ever ask it in a Bible study. Anybody who asks that question, what does this verse mean to you, needs to be escorted outside of the small group and told never to come back again. It's not what does the verse mean to you. The correct question is what does the verse mean? That requires you to read it in context, by the way. But that's okay because the Bible is just a handbook for living. Okay. Now here we go. It's, it, there's a note here in the uh, in the Blazing Saddles Bible study says, "Note: Read the passage for them. You know that's Psalm chapter two, verse four, and don't allow the members of the group to read the passage for themselves in context. Otherwise, they might get confused by the negative language in the surrounding verses. Only focus on the words." Quote, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Okay. Now be sure to reinforce and affirm any participant who feels like this verse is telling them to loosen up and to not take life so seriously. Affirm that. Oh, we affirm that. Yes, God is speaking that to your heart. That's how these things go. Step two, have small group participants watch the campfire bean scene from (laughs) Blazing Saddles and then discuss the questions below. Folks, you're going to experience the Blazing Saddles Bible study in honor of Rick Warren. Okay, so um, I apologize ahead of time, but, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this. So, okay, so here we go. This is the – you're only going to get the audio, but you'll get the picture just from the audio. This is the campfire bean scene from Blazing Saddles. All right, there we go. Folks, This is I'm being relevant here. This is the Blazing Saddles Bible Study. I mean, we're just being relevant. I mean, if you can have the High School Musical 3 Bible Study, we can have the Blazing Saddles Bible Study. And you've just experienced the uh, campfire bean scene in all of its glory. All right, so let's continue with the Bible study now. Now that you've experienced the campfire bean scene from Blazing Saddles. Remember, this is a Bible study, folks. And this is all about learning how to laugh, so don't take yourself too seriously. All right, number one, the Bible says to make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. That's Psalm 11, uh, chapter 81, verse 1. Did you feel joy while you were laughing at this scene? Did you feel that Psalm 81, verse 1 could be referring to the noises that you just heard in this video clip? Why or why not? Now, there's a note here in the Bible study that says, if any participants are uncomfortable laughing at this type of humor, then remind them that Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 teaches us that God has a sense of humor and that their resistance to humor may be a sign that they are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, chap- uh, next, next in the Bible study here, since God made sex, doesn't it logically follow that he also made flatulence? See, I mean, right. That's I mean, all those guys out there doing those sex sermons. It's, you know, they say it's not like sex was uh, was uh, created in a back alley. God is not surprised by sex. Well, God created flatulence, too, right? So, see, therefore, God made flatulence. We should be re- embracing the flatulence. 
Can you think of any other ways that you can make joyful noises to the Lord with your body? Uh huh. Now, note, have each member of the group demonstrate joyful noises with their body. Make sure that everyone enjoys a good belly laugh with each demonstration of a, bo- of a joyful noise. And then reiterate the fact that God has a sense of humor and that by participating in this Bible study, each person has learned how to be more like God. That, my friends, is the Blazing Saddles Bible study. And it's just as twisted and wrong as the high school... Musical three Bible study. Yeah. It's still more sanctified. Well, yeah, you're a guy. You would say that. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, sadly, I know that you, you know, you just want more and more of this type of humor. I can feel it from you, you know, coming through the Internet airwaves. The Holy Spirit is speaking to my spirit about your spirit. Wanting. Never mind. (laughs) Yeah, I won't go down that road. All right. I was just kidding. Anyway. (laughs) Sadly, we are at the end of our of our radio program today. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. And if you'd like to email me regarding the High School Musical 3 Bible Study, uh, Paula White, any of the email that you heard, or the Blazing Saddles Bible Study, I'll put links up to it at fightingforthefaith.com. That's fightingforthefaith.com. And you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs>